All right, this is Josh T. Franco interviewing Gabo Kamnitzer at his home in Brooklyn, New York on August 7th, 2020 for the Smithsonian Institution Archives of American Art Pandemic Project. Uh, Gabo, thanks for taking a few minutes to talk to us, to talk to me for the archives. And this project, um, you know, really is just about checking in on American artists uh, in 2020, the year of pandemics of COVID-19, surging racism, um, and we want to see how people are. So how have you been since March? Um, relatively speaking, pretty well, I have to say. Um, I mean, all things considered, I count myself among the lucky ones, I'd say. Um, yeah. But it's hard to sort of act like nothing horrible is happening in the world on a daily basis. Yeah, well, you've been particularly active around one of the kind of effects of all this, which is rent um, and the kind of, I'll say it in hashtag form, hashtag cancel rent, but it's a large movement. Um, yeah, yeah. It's been very visible and important component of things. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, really the housing crisis in New York and in the country, like, yeah, precedes COVID. I mean, I think it's really just a matter of that when COVID kicked in the gear, it really exacerbated all the problems that were already happening. Um, and during that time, like early March, I started making graphics for the Housing Justice for All Coalition, um, which is this great coalition of New York-based organizations all over the state that have been working with these questions of housing rights for years, really. Um, so I, yeah, I started making graphics just like for Instagram and stuff, and I was getting more engaged with that. And then me and my partner um, reached out to people in our building. We live in a building with like over 100 units. Um, actually, first, it was really just to see if there was need for mutual aid. You know, there are a lot of mutual aid networks popping up at that time. And we'd only lived here less than a year, so we didn't really know people in the building that well. Um, so we just like, first we put up posters, um, they got taken down by um, management. So then we flyered the building um, and we got a decent response. So it started out just like seeing if people needed help, um, you know, if there were people who had, were sick or elderly, and then it sort of transitioned into um, basically a rent strike. Because at first, we wanted to see if management would offer rent relief. I mean, I think the same thing played out on a massive scale all across the city, all across the country, where it's just like trying to see if there's going to be any kind of like meeting halfway with management. And for the most part, I mean, there are, of course, exceptions, but for the most part, landlords and management companies have just like refused to negotiate with tenants. So... Um, it steadily escalated into a rent strike, which, um, yeah, I mean, kind of at every turn, we had the um, management kind of, um, sorry, someone's screwing something. <laughs> um, we had management kind of just making the situation worse for everyone, um, but that would mobilize tenants further. So, um, but I mean, now we have the situation where the um, housing courts are about to open yeah. in, in New York. Or, I mean, Cuomo keeps 
Andrew Cuomo, the governor, keeps um, extending the moratorium month by month. But so everyone's just like on tenterhooks. Um, and I mean, just thinking about how the crisis precedes COVID, like while the moratorium applies to people who have been affected by COVID, people prior to COVID that have been like served eviction notices are now already in court, you know, because the moratorium doesn't apply to them. So, I mean, there's 14,000 families in New York who, I mean, families who have been served eviction notices um, just from like January, February, and beginning of March. So, I mean, it's just, and like thinking about how that, I mean, it's, everything's all connected. So like those families who will be without housing, like are more susceptible to all the other um, issues of this moment, you know? So, yeah, I mean, we could talk about that the whole time. It wouldn't be enough, but. Yeah. Um, well, I think just once, you know, my, it's, important takeaway is just that, uh, you know, your contributions with your artistic skills to the visual, you know, amplification of cancel rent was noticed, uh, you know, an important, and um, yeah, the cliff is here. We'll see what happens. But um, so one thing I want to be sure to ask you about too is education in this context, in the COVID 2020 context. And for two big, significant, different reasons. Uh, one, your college level teaching, which I'll get to, but also you as an artist, your practice is really, is, um, you collaborate with children and you invite them into works and they are your partners in a lot of your uh, significant artworks. Um, can you describe one or two of those exciting projects? And then I'm curious if that experience has given you a lens on what back to school is meaning for people right now? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as an example, a project that I was working on prior to the to COVID, um, which is like working with an after school program in New York, on the Lower East Side, Sixth Street Community Center. Um, and it's just like involved me going in most Fridays and collaborating with kids on this project around like children's movements and and, and children's forms of protest throughout history and thinking about like the, the current climate strikes um, around the world and how yeah how, while they're really fantastic they all tend to fall into certain traps of sort of organized um, demonstration that can like limit their impact and just like thinking together with children about how children in the past have found more militant and more sort of subversive ways of mobilizing in relation to like labor rights and things like that, school uh, student rights and so forth. Um, and that, you know, way of working, that kind of long-term engagement face-to-face, -face, like in a room building relationships and, and movement building more broadly, I think is facing a crisis. But so I, I'm sort of in this period of trying to rethink um, how those forms of, of being together can exist during a moment like this, you know? Um, and that's like an ongoing sort of struggle to figure out. I think like the, this paradox that we're all like inhabiting, thinking about being forced to choose like whether we're going to prioritize the health of students and, and teachers, of children and teachers, 
um, versus like the economy. Um, I think, it, I mean, really it's a, a false kind of setup. I mean, the, the, um, the bigger question is like educational inequity, how little money is invested in the education system, I mean, public education system. So really like in New York, which is the only major school district in the country that's planning to be in person um, in less than a month, which is crazy. Um, like basically these super sort of underserved schools are being forced to create contingency plans that really put everyone at risk. Um, and when they kick up the fuss, it's the, you know, the teachers and the administrators that are being blamed rather than, you know, the, the neoliberal system, the austerity system that's sort of deprived them of the actual tools to do this in any kind of safe way. Um, yeah, yeah, so all that is to say that like, both in relation to like, my work, my artistic production, and like, just, you know, yeah, being a parent, thinking about like, having a kid in the education system, like, it's really just trying to grapple with the, these larger structural inequalities, and, and trying to engage with them in a way that's like, not just firefighting, you know, not just dealing with it one day at a time, but like actually meaningfully trying to change the whole system. And going forward, like, I'm even more invested in that than I, you know, I, something that's something I always felt invested in. But like, now I feel like, I really feel like I have less um, interest in those short term projects that kind of just like, are ameliorative, but not necessarily long term, you know, or not necessarily thinking about structural change. So yeah, going forward, I hope to focus more and more on that sort of long-term structural sort of change. Yeah. Uh, that's an interesting shift to watch some artists make from project-based works to long-term life goals. Um, but I do wonder about this particular, have you experimented with or have any thoughts to play with Zoom, like this kind of technology with children, or are you just sort of waiting this out to get back to that kind of work? Um, yeah, I think I'm, to an extent at this point, I think I'm waiting it out. I have a really sort of complicated relationship with Zoom, I think, or like just with telecommunications more generally. <laughs> so like, I, I think like, I'm like seriously suspicious of it as a technology at the same time, like acknowledge question, like the way the ways that it addresses certain problems around accessibility and, and those things. But I'm to an extent hopeful that like the importance of that face-to-face -face encounter, the importance of like being in a room together, working together, touching the same objects, like making things together can stay privileged, you know, can stay like a, a, a sacred space. And I think the time scale that we have of, of like hopefully having a vaccine by February or I mean early 2021 puts a, like an a end date on this in a way that I feel like capable of waiting it out, you know. Um, now on the flip side of that, like I am working in higher ed and like 
right now I'm like trying to develop a curriculum that can function within these like uh, strange modalities in a way that's generative. Um, but even in that capacity, like I'm going to be teaching at UMass Dartmouth and like we're developing a curriculum that will be like outdoors as much as possible. You know, it's like a very beautiful, vast campus that has like a lot of nature. So we're just developing, you know, projects that will um, engage the nature. So, yeah, I'm not, I, I, I'm with full awareness that in 20 years, people might like look back on this and think like, oh, that was before we took you know, Zoom remote learning for granted and that like my position might be dated, but I, I'm still kind of very attached to the need to be like working with people in a room and like, you know, with people that belong to your immediate community, like your physical material community. Yeah. Um, because I like, I think that's like going back to those structural questions, like it's on that level that we can make change happen. I think it's a lot more difficult when we're sort of abstracted from one another and alienated from one another and our interactions are mediated yeah. through you know big tech companies yeah um yes yeah, so that's worth thinking about um the so yeah this new position at umass dartmouth i want to hear more about what it is but I'll, but going back a little bit you were teaching at columbia the last few years um can you talk a bit about how it was to be so just abruptly disrupted mid spring semester by COVID and what, what that was like. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, it was, it was nuts. <laughs> you know, say. I think like anyone working at any level of education experienced a very abrupt, um, somewhat traumatic experience. Cause like, you know, you spend this time building these relationships and then suddenly like, certain elements of those relationships are laid bare um, in a very sort of um, destabilizing way. You know, just like thinking about particularly like working in a private institution, just like that relation, the consumer relationship that the students have justifiably to their education. Um, and then suddenly I'm on this other side of the divide in terms of just like providing, ostensibly providing a service, you know, um, and just like being aware that, I mean, particularly just going back to my stance on, you know, remote teaching, like I'm in my own eyes providing something that I feel like isn't a sufficient substitution um, to what we would have been having otherwise if we were in person. So, I mean, I think like basically I had like syllabi for the classes I was teaching. I was like, you know, I spent time developing, you know, years developing really that I was happy with and suddenly I had to tear them up and really try to develop something that functioned within the parameters of remote learning in a way that felt generative. Um, and there, there were certain aspects that worked really well and certain aspects that, you know, didn't work at all, you know. Um, so it was really a learning experience. I think like, now with the benefit of hindsight like i can just like really sort of expand on the things that were working and really not try to um develop things that like won't work you know and i think that's partially why at umass dartmouth like we're going to be really sort of leaning in to the novelty of the situation and really just like focusing on you know working in the nature there and being outdoors as much as possible and 
really sort of making provisional site-specific um, works that engage with like questions of land use and um, you know working with questions of sustainability and, and ethical like use of the land. I think like it'll be something very specific to the moment, but it'll be also something that you know hopefully will serve the students and 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 the people teaching for the rest of their lives. You know. Yeah, I mean that's such a great resource in that area of the country to have totally. at this time. Um, have you? Uh, we just always want to know too about people's access to their studios. If those are separate from their homes, did COVID disrupt access to them? Um, so where do you work, and is that still possible? Um, yeah, so my studio is in, in Maspeth. I, I'm in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and my, my studio is in Maspeth, Queens. It's like twenty minute walk. Um, I'd say like, yeah, that physical divide while it's very sort of manageable, the sort of epistemological and emotional one is like a far, uh, far more difficult to cross. I think like, yeah, I've only been there a handful of times and it's usually like for logistical purposes rather than going, um, to like work open-endedly. Um, that said, I have been doing some work at home. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like, yeah, this period has really shaken me to the core in terms of just thinking about like what, what the purpose of artistic production is in a moment like this and like what my role as an artist is. And, you know, I've, I, I guess I would say I've always had an ambivalent relationship to the studio in terms of just like it being a space where I work in isolation, um, something that I want to do, you know, I've been more, particularly over the past like uh, 10 years or so, more focused on collaborative projects and sort of just open-ended prompts that I then explore with people. So um, I'd say like certain hesitations or reservations I've had about like the studio as a model of production like have been enhanced. I'm sure I'll come back to it at a certain point, but just like the, yeah, the privilege involved in having a separate space, um, you know, while I continue to pay for it, <laughs> that, that privilege of having that space is something I'm uncomfortable with, particularly like given people's relationships to ho housing at this moment in this city, you know. Oh yeah, I have not thought about that in relationship to the housing anxieties everyone's, yeah, people are having, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, in the last couple of minutes here, so you know, we're the archives we reasonably expect to be around um, as part of the Smithsonian. So for that researcher in a hundred years, um, I always think of, I like to think of them as practicing artists, but the researcher, uh, what should they know about what it was like to be an artist in 2020? <laughs> um, well, first I'm very happy that there are researchers and artists in a hundred years, like, that's great news. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess like hopefully looking back at this moment or this whole like epoch, this whole era, um, it'll like will seem quaint in our inability to inhabit contradiction. Um, mm -hmm. And hopefully in a hundred years, like the lessons of simplistic understandings of 
society um, will have been learned. I think like, yeah, I mean, really just going back to what I was talking about in terms of relationship to my studio and relationship to artistic production at this moment, it's really just like that feeling of like inhabiting contradictions that I can't reconcile, I can't like make sense of, you know? And I feel like more generally education during this period of time, I mean, it's probably 2000 years or more at this point, has been like woefully inept at preparing people for inhabiting contradiction, mm. really um, understanding the contradictions that we embody. So I hope, I hope like that's something that feels dated and um, quaint in a hundred years. I like that. Thanks, Gavo. Thank you.